0: just one more thought here (laughs) a lot a lot to say so much to say but thinking about that idea of stories you know i was talking about that last night and you know how some of what we see in casting and some of these creative decisions that are being mandated really and and to me they're anti-creative not very creative at all but how uh they're kind of based on this premise That everybody experiences movie, TV, or books, or comic books, anything for that matter, through this very narcissistic lens where they need to identify with the characters. And I'm curious how much uh, research has really been put into this, or even just thought, because I was thinking about the way that I consume books or movies or TV, and it's not about identifying with the characters, Relating to them, maybe, depending on what it is, you know, relating to them. But it's, it's been since I was a little kid. You know, I, I understand for little kids. Because little kids watch a movie and then they start pretending to be that character. I don't think that character has to look like them, though. I don't think that character has to physically resemble them. I think the kid will just like a certain character for whatever reason. Like I can tell you, when I was a kid into Star Wars, like I loved the character of Lando. And if, if my friends and I were pretending to be Star Wars characters, I was more than happy to be Lando. I thought Lando was very cool. And it had nothing to do with, you know, it wasn't me as a, as a white child wasn't me as a white baby, little little old white baby. wasn't me as a little old white baby. thinking like, oh, I better like Luke. Luke's coloring is the most like mine. As a little boy watching Star War, watching Star War, I, 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 I thought to myself, you know Luke's coloring, not just his skin tone, but he has the fairest hair of them all. Johann you know, Solo, his hair is a little darker than mine. His facial features, you know, I think Luke's ethnic, I think Mark Hamill's ethnicity is probably closer to mine. I don't know that for a fact, but I just, based on the way he looks, I mean, he could pass for Scandinavian. He might even be Scandinavian or German. Hamill, I'm not sure what that is. It sounds almost, uh, I don't know, I don't want to make a guess, but wouldn't surprise me if Mark Hamill has some Northern European in him, some Scandinavian, German, something like that. But I, I, I never cared about Luke. I never... As, as a, I didn't have any friends who were Luke guys. Because, you know, everybody I knew growing up was a white baby. Every little boy in the neighborhood and in my friend group was a little old white baby. We were all white babies. None of us were Luke guys. Like my best buddy Nick, was, he was way into Han Solo. Didn't really look like Han Solo. Didn't look like him at all. <laughs> uh, nobody really based it on that. People were into aliens. Kids were into Chewie. I knew kids who so their favorite character was Chewbacca. And if we were role-playing as Star Wars characters or playing with the action figures, they were happy to be Chewbacca. What's he? You know, are, are kids identifying with Chewbacca? It has nothing to do really with, oh, he looks like me, therefore I'm represented. Boba Fett, you can't even see him. People love Boba Fett. He's on the screen for two seconds in those movies. People loved him. They never even knew what he looked like until they ruined him, until they ruined Boba Fett. So funny, just, it's it's always so funny to me where what made Boba Fett so cool is you were barely exposed to him. He doesn't even do anything cool. I thought he was cool. You know, Boba Fett's cool. I mean, he looks cool. It's the power of presentation right there power of presentation because boba fett does nothing the empire catches everybody and gives them over to him so he doesn't even do anything impressive in, in the empire strikes back he's just there and then in return of the jedi they humiliate him he gets knocked into the pit by a blind han solo on accident and he lets out this really pathetic squeal falls into the pit he does nothing cool People loved him, though. And the reason they loved him is because, one, he looked cool, and he was also barely on screen. He was mysterious. And they dealt with him a lot in the expanded universe back in the day. A lot of comic books. I think there were probably some novels about him. But the reason why those were popular were because you weren't exposed to him much in the movies, and you thought, what's he all about? He's a man of mystery. People liked that. They ruined him by not only showing his face in the prequel but they had to make his dad which <laughs> that's that's pretty high up there in creative bankruptcy that's like the sort of thing like a, a a little baby would come up with like if you were to ask me when i was a little old baby into star wars watching it right out of the womb but when i was a little old baby if you had asked me, like, what would be a good origin story for Boba Fett? I'd be like, oh, well, his dad was also Boba Fett, but he had a different name and his dad was also Boba Fett. Oh, and all of the original stormtroopers were clones of Boba Fett's dad and Boba Fett's actually a clone of his dad too. Therefore, Boba Fett and all the, the original stormtroopers look alike. Like that's, that's creative bankruptcy right there. I mean, even as a little kid, I wouldn't have come up, come up with something that stupid as a backstory. So they ruined him. And then they showed his face. And I don't think he looked very cool. I don't think they chose the best actor. But anyway, um, point being, like, watching Star Wars as a kid, I don't remember identifying... I don't remember like seeing the story through anybody's eyes. I just thought some characters were cooler than others. I thought Boba Fett was cool. I thought, I pretty much thought everybody was cool. In the original trilogy, I don't think there was any character, good, bad, or otherwise who I didn't like or who I didn't, I wasn't interested in. I liked the aliens. I liked the aliens. I did though. I didn't need to look like, I didn't, feel the need to look like the aliens in order to be interested in them or engaged by them or the story when i would pretend to be lando or play with the lando action figure it wasn't because i identified with billy d williams i just thought he was a cool character and i thought it was a great story and i got to be an observer to it that's exactly what i'm getting at when i watch movies even as a kid, for the most part, like as a kid, you do role play a little more. You do think like, oh, I'm going to be that guy, but you don't necessarily role play as the character who looks like you or comes from your background, especially in a fictional universe like that. And as an adult, I especially don't do it. You know, my favorite TV show of all time was The Sopranos. Do you think I watched The Sopranos and I go, oh, that's me. There's characters you like. But I don't watch The Sopranos and think, you know, there's, there's relatable things. Like when Tony gets up in the middle of the night and makes himself an ice cream sundae, you can go, oh, it's just like me. When I smoke too much weed, it's just like me. But you don't watch The Sopranos and think like, oh, I, I really identify with Tony. He reminds me of me. Maybe there's some fat, bald Italian guy who's like, finally. Finally, the lead character is a fat, bald, Italian guy who gets laid all the time. Thank God. (laughs) You know, maybe there's some guy out there. I've never even heard of that, though. I've been on Sopranos forums. Everybody I know, every guy I know, we have a a conversation about the Sopranos. It's kind of like the Luke Skywalker syndrome. You got a case of Luke Skywalker syndrome? No, it's kind of like Luke Skywalker syndrome, where, like, most of my friends who have been into the Sopranos... If you were to ask us our because fa- you end up with favorite characters and stuff, but again, they're not based on how closely you identify with them, especially superficially. Like, I have favorite characters on The Sopranos, but, like, talking to everybody, like, I don't really know anybody whose favorite character is Tony. Like, I used to watch it with my mom when it was still on. My mom and I would watch The Sopranos on Sunday night when it would air. And, you know, she'd be like, oh, I, I, I just love Polly. I just love Polly. That's how my mom sounded. And like that's me too. Like I'd be like, oh yeah, I love Silvio. I love Polly. But it's not like I see the I'm seeing the story through Polly's eyes. Polly's the character that I most closely identify with. My narcissism requires me to closely identify with one character and see them as me living out the story. Polly. not how my brain works. And I don't know many people whose brains work that way. I know that people do relate. Like, I I know that, like, I remember I had a girlfriend who watched a bunch of, she would do a lot of binge watching and she'd always be like, so relatable, but she was kind of half joking. Like, but that's like Tony eating the ice cream. It's like, oh, we all know what it is to get a midnight snack. Oh, even the mob boss. Look at, well, you look at that. Even the mafia boss Gets up in the middle of the night and makes himself a, an ice cream sundae. And you know what? I bet Tony hated himself in the morning. But no, like, like there's relatable things. Like, like that's why they're, I mean, that's why we watch them. I mean, that's why you can't, I mean, is it, is it even possible to really make a good quality show or movie that doesn't have something relatable in it, given it's like human beings? Like you could have a movie, and it's just a guy sitting in a white room, and you'd probably be like, "That's relatable." Oh, doesn't it reminds me of the waiting at the doctor's office? You know, we relate to things. We'll relate to things even when we don't need to. So the idea that we need to put this extra work in to make everything relatable—if something's good, it's going to have things in it that are relatable. We don't need to force them. And I don't think—and relating to something is different from identifying with it, or needing to see yourself in it. So, uh, this plays into the, you know, the casting decisions that get made. Like, girls aren't going to like this if it doesn't have a female heroine. If it doesn't have a female shooting up heroine, girls aren't going to like this. If it doesn't have a female heroine, they think girls aren't going to like it. I think it's fine to have stories with female leads. I think it's great to have movies with with black leads, whoever. But the push for it's very interesting, you know, like the level, the pu- like the, the mandate because it has become a mandate, um, and they don't do a great job at it. And you know, speaking of Star Wars, I I saw two of the new. No, I've seen three of the the new Star Wars technically like like two of the trilogy i never saw the third in the the last trilogy they did i saw the first one in the theater and it was sad i mean it really it made me sad because i didn't even know it had come out and like my childhood best friend messaged me he's like it's really good go see it it's way better than the prequels that was what every single person said to me it's way better than the prequels and my girlfriend at the time was like oh like she saw she saw the new star wars with her mom or something like that and she's like oh I want to take you to go see it which is really sweet because she was like I think you're gonna like it it's not like the prequels I was like I, I was very I didn't express my reluctance but I inside I, I just knew I just knew I wasn't gonna like it and sure enough like in the theater that inner Star Wars uh, fan from when I was a kid kicked in where like I was overanalyzing everything I was like that wouldn't happen and a part of me too like I read a bunch of, when I was a little kid, I, I read a bunch of those expanded universe books. Probably some of the first novels I read that weren't assigned from school were probably like the Star Wars Expanded Universe ones. And I'd read some of the comic books. I also had this this what was called a source book. It's called like the Star Wars Universe Source book. And it was just like bios of all the characters, not just in the movies, but in the expanded universe. So like I would just spend, I mean, I found my old copy of that somehow. I think I sold it or something, but I, I think I, no, I gave it to somebody. I have a, I have a friend who makes collages. And so I gave it away for that Star Wars collages. But uh, yeah, you know that Star Wars source book. Like because I, I would just, I would pour over that thing. Literally, because like when I found my old copy, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I would read this in the bathtub all the time because it was water damaged. It was like you could just tell that this thing had had, had some water just poured over it. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I knew I didn't read everything. You know, I didn't I didn't consume everything in the expanded universe, but I cared about it. I paid attention. And so when they threw that all away, when Disney bought Star Wars and they threw away the expanded universe, and made it non canon, I was like, fuck you. It's like studying for a test your whole life and then finding out they changed the material. That's like a thing from old teen movies where it's, it's like the teacher had you study all this material for the test and then on test day you find out it's about something else. It's about, it, it doesn't, the test involves material that you weren't told about or something. It's kind of what it's like when they're like, oh, yeah, the expanded universe, it's non-canon, disregard it. But when I saw the that first new one in the theater, and I was with my girlfriend, and, you know, she was taking me out and being sweet, so I, I didn't, I wasn't mean. I was just quiet. You know, I was just kind of quiet. And I was disappointed. And then I saw the second one, like, I think it was when my mom was still alive, like, she had, uh digital cable where you could order movies. And there's one night where I just got really stoned and watched the second one. You know, I didn't hate it. Actually, what's funny is like everything I heard from everybody else is that they liked the first one, hated the second one. And I think everybody hated the third from what I gather. But everybody that I had you know, spoken with and a lot of what I saw online was that people liked the first one, hated the second one. I didn't like the first one I bet if I rewatched the second one, I would hate it. I just have that feeling because I don't remember any of it. The only thing I remember is that Luke is meditating and dies. Luke meditates to death. And I I think I like that because I think I'd already started meditating when I watched it. And so I was like, he's just like me because I'm trying to meditate to death. The whole, the whole reason I'm meditating is I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to meditate to death like Luke. No, but really like like there was just something silly about that. Like Luke Skywalker dies meditating. And uh, I, I don't even know what happened. It probably sucked. I was just stoned. And I think I was eating like, I think I was stoned and just binge eating. And so my experiences, my like favorable feelings probably came from just whatever I was eating or something from my gut biome. But, uh, and then I saw Rogue One, I think it was called. Didn't like it. Had some cool things about it, but just that CGI Princess Leia at the end, that actually ruined the whole movie. It's like I was talking about when I saw Fantastic Beasts, where, I you know, I don't know the Harry Potter world that well. Through cultural osmosis, I know a lot, and I think I saw one of the Harry Potter movies when it came out. Didn't see all of them. Didn't read the books. But I... My girlfriend at the time wanted to see Fantastic Beasts and I saw, I really enjoyed it. Being totally in the dark on the Harry Potter universe, I was immediately able to like be there. Like I've said before, what's so impressive about Harry Potter as someone who doesn't actually give a shit about it at all. What's so impressive to Harry Potter is that even as someone who doesn't give a shit, I can watch one of those movies and get it. I don't feel like I'm, it's not too esoteric. Like, I'm not watching, like, when I've tried to watch Star Trek, it's too esoteric. Like I feel like there's, like, you have to, like, start from the beginning and really get into it. Harry Potter, though, like, you can just on a whim watch a movie in that universe and you can immediately get it. But yet it's very detailed and intricate. It's not because it's oversimplified. It's, like, there's actually, like, a ton to the lore and the storyline and everything. There's a ton going on. Like, she really thought through, she really put a lot of thought into that world She's an amazing world builder. I have no interest in ever reading any of her books. You know, I just saw the movies kind of on a whim with other people who wanted to see them. But really an incredible world builder. And there's not really a higher compliment I can give to somebody uh, like an author or a filmmaker or anybody. Like that's pretty much the highest compliment I can give them. You're an amazing world builder. And I feel that way about The Simpsons, too. Like, I'm not a Simpsons fan. I grew up in the, the peak years of The Simpsons. I would watch it if it was on, but didn't really care. Just didn't care about The Simpsons. But what I, what I actually liked about it, the thing that I liked about The Simpsons, and it was funny back then and everything. But what I actually really liked about The Simpsons was Matt Groening, who went to my college, is an incredible world builder. Like, he really built Springfield. It's not just a cartoon with a town and you see different parts of it now and again. Like most cartoons don't feel like you're actually in that world. But The Simpsons, it was really amazing. And I knew this kid who had a map of Springfield. It was a cartoon map of Springfield. And I was just like, this is amazing. What it reminded me of is looking at the fantasy maps in the beginning of uh, fantasy novels. How every fa- it's not a fantasy novel if it doesn't have a map of the different continents and cities in the front of the book. It's not a true fantasy novel if it doesn't have that. But seeing the Simpsons map, the Springfield map, I was like, this is awesome. You know, this is really cool. I don't, it doesn't make me a bigger Simpsons fan, but clearly this guy built a world and J.K. Rowling did that too. But, you know, Fantastic Beasts, you know, I loved it. I wouldn't be able to tell you what happened. I don't remember a single, I don't remember anything about the plot or the characters or anything, but I loved it. I really enjoyed it in the theater. And then at the very end, the bad guy throughout the whole movie is unmasked and it's Johnny Depp with bleached hair and probably an earring and like a mustache or something. He definitely has bleached hair and a mustache. And my girlfriend and I were both just devastated. It really ruined the movie for us. Like, it was right at the very end, too. And uh, it's almost like a song or something, and you've been listening to the entire song, and you're like, this is amazing. This is an amazing song. And at the very end, there's a riff or vocals or something that are just god-awful. That's kind of what it was like. It was just like, oh, yeah, we're going to ruin the movie for you. Oh, it's Johnny Depp looking like... He might as well be Jack Sparrow with a haircut. Same thing for that Rogue One movie in Star Wars, where it was like, this is kind of cool. I mean, it flows. What I remember about that movie is just the story flows really well, like the action flows very well. Didn't really care about it that much, but then it was fine. But then what makes it a double thumbs down is that whole CGI of Carrie Fisher at the end. That uncanny valley Carrie Fisher. Nope. Nope. Anyway, this need to identify this narcissism that means that I don't even know exists in most people because, like I said, I haven't known that many people, especially adults, but even kids, whose enjoyment or experience watching something, a movie or TV or reading a book, I don't know that any who were the attraction. Where the immersion comes from, like needing that character to be as much like you as possible, it's just I've never I've never experienced that. And uh, but that seems to be the motivation, you know, because that seems to be the steel man argument for this the diversity in casting. The steel man argument seems to be there are people out there who feel alienated by movies where nobody looks like them because they need to relate that way. And I do understand it with little kids. I'm a little more lenient with things that are intended for little kids. Like I get the Burger King's, I get the Burger King Kids Club diversity for Burger King. Like it makes sense to me that a place like Burger King, Burger King, Burger King, it makes sense that they would have a black kid, an Asian kid, a white kid, a a wheelchair kid. You saw that everywhere in stuff that was intended for children. I mean, we had a running joke like early on. We were aware of this stuff early on as kids. And, you know, this was already in place. We saw it in certain places where like when I was in junior high, we would get issued a math book or a history book. And the math book or the science book, whatever it was, would often have kids on the cover doing something. Like a science book that you were assigned in junior high would have a few kids by a tree, like looking at it or something. They'd be outside and inevitably there'd be one in a wheelchair and they'd be different races. And even as little kids, even as 13 year olds, you'd be like, oh, look, they got the kid in the wheelchair. They're meeting the quota. You know, I don't know what we would say, but we would point that out. We didn't hate it for it. It was just like, we know what they're doing. We know why they do that. But it also makes sense. It makes sense why Burger King, it makes sense why school books, things like that would play into that. But when it starts getting into creative material, when it starts getting into entertainment and storylines, it gets into different territory. Because uh, I mean you think about Burger King, and it that's marketing. The idea behind that, It's not that anybody's going to be deeply interested in what the Burger King Kids Club group is doing. Like maybe you get a little free comic book with your Happy Meal. I don't even know. Maybe they show the kids doing things on TV commercials. I don't even remember how they used them. But it's not like you care about that. Like there were no kids out there where they were like, you know what my thing is? Oh, you're into Star Wars? Well, what I'm really into is the Burger King Kids Club. Like, if you got a toy of them with your Happy Meal, you'd think, oh, this is cool. But that was it. But with, with more immersive stories, you know, immersion doesn't depend on that. Immersion doesn't depend on meeting a quota. And you know, going back to what I was saying about the, uh, the Star Wars movies, one of the criticisms was, like, they introduced this new girl who's the lead. And that was obviously a conscious decision. They obviously chose, you know, given that the, the prequels and... Well, I'm talking about this, the, the sequels now. But the prequels and the originals, you know, the lead character was a man. They had, they had lead females, too, who got just as much screen time, or at least pretty darn close. But, you know, the, the main guy was a, was a guy the main guy was a guy. And so I understand, you know, it's clearly a conscious decision that they were like, "Oh, when we do this sequel in the 2010s, let's make it a woman." You can tell that was a conscious decision done for the reasons I'm talking about, you know, the these quotas, these mandates. But it's it's not a horrible decision. It's not a it's not a, it's not a bad decision. Like even if their intent played into this agenda, I think it's a totally reasonable creative decision to be like, let's make the lead character in the new ones a woman. Like, there are a lot of female Star Wars fans. An ex-girlfriend of mine had a Star Wars-themed wedding when she got married years after we broke up. You know, girls love Star Wars, too. But that should also tell you something that the girls I knew who were into Star Wars didn't feel alienated from it because the main character's a guy or anything like that. But still, I understand, it, you know, it's still, a, I could see where you can do that creatively. Let's make it a woman. But the criticism of that is she doesn't struggle at all. Like she learns the force instantly. Because, you know, Luke, the thing is, even though Luke's the protagonist, he's the, the main guy in the originals, he's a whiny bitch. He's always complaining in the first one, he's this weak little, you know, whiny boy. He's a little baby. In the second one, he, you know, he's whiny too. He's whiny. He goes through this really intense training. He defies his master's orders. He's, a, he's once again a brat. He's not that cool. Luke is not cool in the first or second movies. The only time Luke is cool is in Re- Return of the Jedi. And that's kind of the point. the The point isn't that like we need the main character to be really cool. The point is like, he's he's a he's dough. You got to work this dough into a, a good shape. You got to work this dough, and you know it's gonna take a while to bake it. And then by Return of the Jedi, you're like, yeah, Luke is a cool character now but it takes a while. But the criticism of uh, the, the new sequels is just that they introduced this girl, like there's no character arc. She's just a badass right away. She's a baddest woman right away, and she can do everything. And that kind of plays into you know the way women have been framed, where if you show women in any way that isn't flattering, even in a creative storyline – it's seen as misogynistic, which is why you'll never see a woman get humiliated on a TV commercial. The people who get humiliated on TV commercials are one men, two specifically white men, just a fact. That's, that's the, the, that's mandatory. If you make a television commercial today, for whatever reason, a lot of commercials, a lot of products are marketed around humiliation. They have to depict a stupid person being humiliated, and then the smart, wise person suggests the product they're trying to sell. That's the formula. It's, we're going to have a person who's really stupid and acting in a way that's humiliating. We may even have that person be humiliated. And there's going to be a, a wise person or a group of wise people who put them in the right direction. And setting them in the right direction means the product the commercial's trying to sell. And it's not just people, though. The formula is you have a white man being humiliated, just a stupid, embarrassing white man. There's even a lot of commercials where where the man gets physically assaulted. If you watch TV commercials, just pay attention. You'll see this. I'm not making this up. But you you, you will not see a woman be stupid She's, she, you know, in a commercial with a man and a woman, the woman is the one who gives the man wisdom and wisdom in this case is here's the product we're selling. Oh, the woman knows best by our product. And then when race plays a role, of course, you know, it's the white man or the white couple who gets humiliated. It's just the formula. It seems to be mandatory. And so like with the Star Wars one, it's like, I don't know if they just were bad writers, bad storytellers. Or if they were like, oh, we can't show her doing anything. We can't make her like Luke. You know, we can't make her annoying. Like, like if you just gave her Luke's lines, what we call Luke's lines. You've heard of Robert's Rules of Order. We got Luke's lines here. No, but if you gave her Luke's lines, people would be like, oh, they made her out to be a stereotypical complaining woman. They made her out to be a whiny, complaining, infantile woman. You know, in misogyny. There's real misogyny. I was talking to a friend, you know, about it, a woman. You know, I, be- I believe misogyny exists. I- I've-, I've witnessed it. I've heard enough stories. I've seen enough evidence of it. I know it exists. But I'm not going to use... Because I know it exists, I'm not going to use it when it doesn't apply. But point being, like, it- you could have given that character in the sequels Luke's exact lines from Empire and uh, A New Hope, and somebody might have complained. They might have been like, this is an unflattering portrayal of a woman. Meanwhile, what, is, what Luke was just doing is he's, he's a character in the Raw. He's not cool. He's not a Jedi. He's nothing. He's just a boy, and he's, he's not a very cool one at that. But, you, you know, there might be an issue if you had a, a female character like that, and we don't see them. Like, women in especially any story that involves adventure or toughness like women in those stories they're like right they're like straight out of the package badasses a straight out of the package badass no need to work up to it no need for a story arc a character arc just right away that's how it is but uh You know, if there are little girls out there, though, who like what was missing from Star Wars all these years, they just felt they couldn't get into Star Wars or Star Wars was missing that little thing because it didn't have a female lead. Well, good for them. I'm happy for them. I really am. If there are little girls who felt that way, not because they were told to feel that way, but if there are little girls who genuinely feel that way, I'm happy for them. And I I have no problem with that whatsoever. But just how far does it go? And how important is that? You know, how important is it not just to make movies intended for kids that way, but to make everything that way? That goes back to my question, you know, Lord of the Rings, where like a point I was trying to make the other night, I don't know if I explained it well, was that you're not even going to have any, any dissent now. and. And simply having a different take is dissent. Like, when they cast these films now, and they're like, okay, we need to have Black Hobbits. You know, not wanting that, or having another idea, being like, why don't we just go with the way it was? And like, they probably found some way to retcon it, or like fit it in, where, that's what I heard, like where it's like, oh, well, it's like a different race of Hobbits with like a, a different name but they're still hobbits like but uh what was i going to say um when those creative decisions are discussed anti-creative but when those meetings are held and stuff simply not going along with with the these casting mandates is is that would be seen as dissent and it's treated that way even though it's not dissent it's simply Hey, I think this is a better idea. I think this makes for a better story. I think this is more consistent with the universe that J.R.R. Tolkien developed. And who are we to change that? Who the heck are you to think that you have the right, that you know the right way to amend J.R.R. Tolkien's work? Like, really, who are you to think that you know how to amend his work properly? You know, it's crazy enough that his son finished those books after he died, you know, his son finished helped edit and I think finish a couple of the books. Some of these, uh, like the Silmarillion, I think Christopher Tolkien helped with. There was a set of books that came out. There was like unfinished stories based on the lore that Christopher Tolkien worked. I mean, that's crazy enough, but at least it's his son. At least it's his heir. But for people who are just disconnected, like even if the family signs off from it, like people who are disconnected from him, of no connection to the man, who are like let's do this with his world. I just don't agree with that. And it's insane to me that someone who's coming from my point of view would be considered a just a not just someone with a different creative idea, which is to say like it's not even a different creative idea. It's 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 the original idea. It's based on the man's it's based on the, the world the man created. It's based on the the stories the man created. It's not new. But that's kind of where we're at now, where if you're in that meeting where they're casting that Lord of the Rings TV show or coming up with ideas for it, and you're like, well, I think we should stick with the, the same basic framework that he, that he was using. You're seen as the radical. You're seen as the revolutionary. And the industry has weeded that out. They've weeded the so-called dissenters out. And that started, with Lord of the Rings, this started with The Hobbit. In 2010, the casting director for The Hobbit movies got fired. They never released his or her name. I think nowadays, if this happened now, in 2022, I think that person's name would be all over the place and their life would be ruined. But the casting director for The Hobbit, who was never named, was fired because they had posted an ad looking for, I think it was for extras or actors to be in in The Hobbit. And they said, like... Light skin only, which makes sense for Lord of the Rings. It makes sense that if you're casting for The Hobbit, you would make that request. It's going to save everybody some time. But it it was massively controversial. A video was also, a video also got out there where showing the casting auditions where like a Middle Eastern woman had tried out for a role. I think she had tried out. I don't know for, for what, but she had tried out for, a, the Hobbit movie and the, that same casting director told this middle Eastern woman, like, Oh, we're, you know, your skin's a little too dark for this character. And that was, you know, that added to it. Like, Oh, they're, you know, they're, they're not hiring, uh, dark skinned people to be in a movie that's about f- fair skinned fictional races based on Europeans. But that casting, this is 2010, that casting director got fired. So so what you can learn from that is, that was 2010. In 2022, that person's not even going to be hired in the first place. That person's not even going to be there. Everybody who's participating in these projects is on board. They're going along with it, either because they want the work or because they they believe in this stuff. But that's the point we're at now. Like, I don't think there are tense meetings about this stuff in Hollywood because I think they've either coerced all of the people they need to coerce or they've weeded them out probably both and so that's something to consider is that that happened with the Hobbit casting director so you know nobody's going to try that again just crazy but you know it goes back to the question I was asking about like women in Star Wars like I knew girls who loved Star Wars it never and they, you know they didn't care about uh, Leia necessarily either Like, when I was in, I think, fifth grade, they released the special edition Star Wars movies, and so kids were really excited. There were a bunch of us, you know, tons of kids had already kind of discovered Star Wars on their own. But being able to see some iteration of the Star Wars trilogy in the theaters, like, we didn't care at that point that there was, like, stupid CGI added to the movie. We were just like, whoa, dude, we're seeing Star Wars in the theaters. And not just that, like, there's all this new shit to notice. I know these movies like the back of my hand, but I'm seeing it on a huge screen and like they added all these little things to it. So it was fun in that way. As a kid, that was fun. Now I don't like it. You know, like, like once I was able to actually watch the special editions with a sober mind, because a kid doesn't have a sober mind. A child's brain is not a sober brain. And uh with a sober adult brain that probably isn't wasn't actually sober, but I remember being like, oh yeah, these suck. It was a bad decision to for him to fuck with these. But you know, all the kids got excited and that included girls that were in my class. There were a few girls, not a lot of them. I'd say there were at least like two or three girls in my class though, who were really into Star Wars at that time. But what's interesting is I remember like we had this we did this thing where the entire class did this contest or something that involved, like, writing – I don't know if the entire class did it, but it was done through our s- school. It was weird. Like, it was some sort of, a, like, a, like, a contest where each kid had to, like, write who their favorite character was, and then it would be sent into to Lucasfilm, and then, like, the best explanation for, like, why you like a character might get you a prize – We never heard anything back i don't know what kind of prize it was but i remember this girl in my class she wrote it because we shared them with each other and this girl in my class like her favorite character was han solo and you know I, i don't think she was a lesbian or anything she was a girl just a little girl but she loved han solo she thought he was awesome i think that was my girlfriend's favorite too my girlfriend who was obsessed with star wars i don't remember her being a leia girl what we like to call a leia girl I think she was into just, uh, I don't think she needed to identify. Like, she was a girly girl. My ex-girlfriend was a girly girl, as girly as you can get, really. Still, though, like, she liked, she just liked it as it was. I don't remember her having any criticism. There was no but. Like, she loved Star Wars. There was no, like, but I wish that there was a, a girl with a lightsaber or anything like that. And so I wonder how many people are out there, like, thinking, like, I wish I could get into this thing, but I, I don't see myself in any of the characters. How common is that? I'd like to know the given how how, heads, how we've just, uh, we've dived into this way of thinking, like, I wonder what kind of data is out there that suggests that these decisions are informed by what people actually want. And we can see these things often don't do as well, too. I think that, that's something that has to be considered... When they make these decisions, the product usually suffers, and it's not as popular. So it doesn't really seem to be speaking to a significant audience. There don't seem to be that many people out there who up to that point felt deprived by Star Wars. And with the black thing, because I mean, like, the big, I mean, and the thing is, too, the way that they use black people, this tokenism, it's far worse than the, the tokenism that they accuse other people of. Like Black Anne Boleyn. Making Anne Boleyn black is distracting. It, you know, it's ahistorical, of course. And it, uh, oh, I mean, that, that one just, it's so obvious. Um, but uh, making, a, making Anne Boleyn black, what was I going to say about that? Well, first, like, I don't know who was asking for that. I don't know what black people were out there, which black people were out there thinking like, man, I really wish I could watch a movie or TV show about Anne Boleyn. But, you know, I can't get into this historical drama about a British king and his wives unless one of them looks like me. And I'd be curious how many black people even watch that. Oh, uh, the Anne Boleyn thing, Like, what got me thinking about that, though, was um, the tokenism. That's just such blatant tokenism. Because clearly the selling point is that this is going to shock you. We're making her black. It's a different form of tokenism, but it's still that's still exactly what it is. And they're using those tokens. They're using people as tokens. And it doesn't... It doesn't... It, it seems to be... Um, They seem to be using people as props in that way. And with Lord of the Rings, it's the same question where I'm like, who out there was into Lord of the Rings, either the books or the movies, and thought, I feel left out? This is a movie about fair-skinned races in a fantasy world inspired by Northern Europe. I feel left out. I mean, obviously, as it was, as both a book and a movie, it spoke to an unbelievable number of people. So, if some people did feel left out or simply weren't interested, maybe it just wasn't for them. Because a lot of other people, a significant majority, were totally cool with it. So, was there some black nerd out there who was like, man, I love Lord of the Rings, but I don't feel represented? in which case what's the problem if you love it already what's the problem so the idea is that like making this decision cuz like if somebody's already a black lord of the rings fan which is pretty cool i've never met a black i'm sure there's tons of black lord of the rings fans but i've never met one but if somebody's already a black lord of the rings fan it's kind of like the girls who were obsessed with star wars where it's like they don't they don't seem to have been alienated by it as it was and they seem to love it as it was so it doesn't seem like this is for them either it doesn't seem to be for the black Lord of the Rings fans because they're already fans of this thing. So why shake it up? And, uh, so, you know, you just, you just wonder who it's for. I I have an answer to that. But then if the, if there's people who didn't give a shit about Lord of the Rings their entire lives, and now because there's non-white characters Now they like it. I'd like to see the data for that. Black Lord of the Rings fans, well, they're already fans, so it doesn't seem to be for them. So who are these mythical fans who couldn't get into it until they made these decisions. And I wouldn't harp on this if that wasn't the argument that's often made for it. The argument that's always made is people feel left out. People feel alienated. They feel marginalized because not every story has somebody with their skin tone. And how specific do you want to get? You want to get into hair color? You know, there's, you know, like I was saying about Tony Soprano, You know, there's not many stories where a fat bald guy is an alpha male who gets laid every day. With beautiful women. And people loved the Sopranos, but I don't think there were anybody, not even fat, bald, Italian guys, who liked it just because he looked like them. I think they would have liked it anyway if it was as good as it is. And, uh, you know, for that matter, too, like, I don't... There's a... Even with the Sopranos, I mean, there's a massive lack of stories of movies, TV... Where a baldman, a fat baldman, is the protagonist and the main character and does cool things. There's just not a lot of stories like that. But you know what? You don't see fat baldman complaining. You don't see fat baldman saying, Hey, why do all the main characters why do they why do all the main characters have hair and why are they all in shape? They just don't seem to care about that, and they still seem to enjoy things where the characters don't look like them. And including a fat, bald guy in a story just for the hell of it isn't gonna appeal to them. But who the audience is for when they make these decisions, the audience is for white liberals. Because those are the people who are gonna watch it and say, oh, that's such a great, oh, that's, isn't it so great that the cast is so diverse? Because those are the sort of conversations they actually have. I used the example on here before when I've talked about this stuff of this guy I used to drink with, he's now gender fluid. He's a smart guy and I I like him. Like I'm not criticizing him, but he's obviously caught up in a much different world than I am. But still, he years ago, he told me about a comic book, a, a science fiction, a newer science fiction comic book and he was explaining it and it sounded cool and he but then like when he was when he was selling me on it we were sitting there at the bar and he was like oh you got to read this like it has it's about this and that and i was like oh interesting and then he was like and it's very progressive and i was like oh that's one of the selling points that's one of the selling points for you like that's important to you that it's progressive I don't care if it is or it isn't, but it was interesting to me that that was part of his framing. And so when somebody watches one of these movies where these decisions have been made, you, you end up... Uh, well, and, and just to finish that, I know I talked about it before, like I do everything, but with that comic book, I ended up buying it for my girlfriend at the time, but then we broke up and I kept it for myself. And I enjoyed it. I was reading it. I enjoyed it. The storyline was like these two aliens are part of different species and their species are at war with each other and they have a love child together. They're like enemy combatants who have a love child together and she has features of both of the alien species and they're they're like subtle aliens. Like they're, they're pretty like one of them has like ram horns which isn't very subtle, but he has like ram horns but I'm not talking about like grotesque green mutant aliens. I mean, like they just look like characters with like a couple decorations. Like he, he looks like just a character, but he has these ram horns and then he has a baby, a little old baby with a a woman whose species has wings, wings in her back. So guess what? The little girl is born with, you guessed it, horns and wings. So they have to hide her wings when she's with the mom so that, uh, or they have to hide her wings so that people don't know she's a hybrid between the two species. Like, when I saw that, when I saw it, like, that was one of the the main stories in the, the comic. I was like, maybe this is what he meant by progressive. It's kind of a progressive idea. You know, it's kind of interracial, interspecies. These two species who are at war with each other have a love child and they have to keep it a secret. I mean, I could see where that's progressive. They're you know, it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet idea, but it's also breaking the boundaries of like, hey, these people are different, but they can come together and be in love, despite the world telling them they can't. I was like, that's progressive, but that's also classic. That's a classic story. You could call it progressive. And I thought that's what he was referring to. And, and I was I thought that was great. It was like, it makes for a good storyline. But then as I got deeper into it, like there was a, a part where the little girl wanders into a woman's shower room and there's a woman with a penis, a woman with a dicky showering. And there's a full page picture of the, the woman with the, the standing there with the penis all drawn and everything. And the little girl's shocked. She's never seen a woman with a penis. And the woman with the penis explains to the little girl, like, some women have penises. And it's like this PSA. You know, it's almost like the, the old PSAs in the G.I. Joe cartoons at the end, where they have the G.I. Joe characters, like, explain, you know, something kids should or shouldn't do or something kids should be careful about. It was kind of like that. where It broke the fourth wall. And up until that point, the comic hadn't done anything like that. But in that moment, it really broke the fourth wall, and it came across like a transgender PSA. And I was reading this. I bought this in, I think, 2016, and so I was reading it probably around 2017. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that that takes me out. They could have introduced the woman with the penis into the story. It just felt so contrived. It broke the wall. It, it it, It just cracked the story. It derailed the story for me. And I was like, ah, that's what he was referring to. When he said it's so progressive, you know, that's what he was referring to. Um, but as a, but using that as a selling point, you know, because, again, like the, the target audience of all these decisions, it's not even necessarily women, minorities. It's progressive liberals who are going to watch this and say, oh, I feel they're going to feel. Uh, oh, it's a uh, they're going to feel proud of themselves because it's because it's not just watching something for entertainment now they get to feel like a good person Ooh, and what's crazy is people have those conversations i think somebody who hasn't known people like this might think that nobody talks this way like they might think nobody would ever try to recommend entertainment to you by saying and it's so progressive truth is they do I've been around people who will say, like, oh, you should check this out. Like, it's so diverse. Like, they don't even try to reword it. They don't even try to put it in their own words. It's, it's shameless. And so they watch this stuff and they pat themselves on the back because not only are they consuming this entertainment, but they get to feel good about it because it's, it's doing something. It's doing that thing that every single person person and thing in their life is saying you have to do and uh you know when when i think about all this stuff (laughs) i mean pretty much where i'm at is the, the people i have a problem with are progressive liberals not every single one of the values they claim to represent I don't have an issue with just minorities or women or any particular people. It's just progressive liberals in general. They seem to be the ones that are causing the most issues. And you can go a little deeper on that as to you know who those people are and everything, but I'll save it. But they seem to be the, they seem to be the ones making these decisions for themselves. Progressive liberals are making these decisions. For a progressive liberal audience. And I don't even think the minorities that they claim to be inviting in give a shit. I don't think you're going to see a bunch of black people running around talking about Lord of the Rings. You know, it, it's if there are the few that are are already part of that cult. There are there. They're the ones who are part of that same cult. And it it doesn't seem to be reflected in sales and numbers. That's the other thing. That's I could understand that argument. As I've said before, I, I actually respect money. People talk a lot of shit about money. It's made up. It's this weird number system. Especially now, like in the age of online banking and debit cards, money is just like moving these numbers around. And I don't understand it. You know, I'm not an economist. But even on the most basic level, I don't understand economics. Where Like, I I don't understand why they can't just, like, given that this is all just moving numbers around, I don't see why they can't just be like, hey, we're going to add an extra zero to the end of your bank account, to the end of your checking account total, just because we can. Because everything's on a computer and we're just moving numbers around, because money's just sliding cards and moving numbers around. Let's just add an extra zero, give everybody an extra thousand dollars. But somehow that would destroy the entire economy. I mean, I guess that's kind of what those uh, stimulus checks were, like a, like a, a more roundabout version. And that apparently is, you know, that hurts the economy to give things like that out. I, I don't really understand that stuff. I know enough people say it that I guess it's true, <laughs> as if that's a good argument. But still, like I, I trust people when they say that, like, oh, if you gave people ten thousand dollars randomly just by typing in an extra zero on their bank account. It would crash our economy. Like, I trust people when they say that, but I also don't understand it. But, you know, I respect money. Money is not a motivation for me. I'm not a money guy. I don't care about money. I don't love money. But I respect money. I respect what it represents. You know, and and to have developed that system and to have it work even as well as it does is pretty freaking impressive. And I, I, I don't know, I respect money. I think you have to. You know I, you know I'm a stingy guy. I'm a stingy old Capricorn. But I do have a certain respect for money. As a result, like even though I don't think it makes for good creativity, I actually respect when someone just says, "Oh, we did that to sell it." Like selling out. Like if something sells out blatantly, I don't really mind it like if if it's self-aware like if somebody knows they're selling out it doesn't bother me it's when people try to hide it so if that was the motivation for all this stuff like if mandatory diversity casting or changing characters to women or black people or all these things that these formulas they follow if this was resulting in just massive profits I'd be like okay I understand. Turns out there was an audience hungry for this. Makes complete sense that these companies who want to make a profit are making decisions that give them more money. Turns out that doesn't happen very often. It turns out a lot of times, actually, these things tank. The TV shows get canceled. The movies don't do well in the box office. They're widely panned. Not just because of these obvious decisions that are being made, these obvious agendas. They're getting widely panned just by people who are like, this story sucks. This isn't well done. So money isn't the motivation. And occasionally something that takes that approach will do well. And people wave that like, look, look, changing this and doing this made a lot of money those tend to be exceptional, and I've paid attention to this. These things usually don't do well, so profit isn't the motivation. And we've seen from some of the decisions that get made, like by Disney, different companies, who are very profit-oriented, we see where they make these decisions and lose money, and they still double down. They stick with it, which tells you something else is going on beyond just money. As much as our culture has been framed around capitalism and... Ultimately, everything boils down to money, especially in the mainstream, especially in mainstream entertainment. What we're seeing right now is very interesting. Like, detaching myself from opinions and all of that, it's simply very interesting to see all of these big for profit companies making decisions that hurt them financially or are less profitable than the alternative, but doubling down on it. Very interesting. Makes you wonder where this is all coming from. And speaks to the fact that there's obviously an agenda that goes beyond simply storytelling. This this isn't coming from a place of, oh, we think this would be the best story to tell. It's not coming from that point of view at all, because these stories often suffer. It doesn't seem to be coming from a point of view of this will be most profitable. So if it's not about telling a good story and it's not about being profitable, what's it doing? Well, it's political. It's political. It's political. It's propaganda. And that's why people don't like it. And when people push back on this kind of thing, it's because deep down, like, they feel like... uh, The comparison I've made on here before with it is you suddenly feel like you're watching a, a commercial or an advertisement. Like, if you're watching something... ...and you suddenly realize that it's trying to sell you something... ...you get a sinking feeling and you don't want anything to do with it. At least I don't. And that's how I feel with these. Whenever I see one of these decisions made... ...whenever I'm watching something and I see an example of that... ...I think... I suddenly, ...I'm suddenly no longer immersed... ...and I feel like I'm watching a commercial. I feel like I'm watching an ad. It feels artificial... almost dropped the phone here. But what's funny about this is a lot of these same people who are into this stuff are very anti-sports. They don't like sports. They think sports are bad. They think sports are evil. They think the NFL is evil. When the NFL and professional sports, they're naturally doing what all these people are trying to do with these stories. Where... I mean, I think about myself, like watching tons of football as a kid and being into... As a kid, I liked baseball and basketball, too. I was just into sports, but I loved football. And here I am, a a kid, a Scandinavian-American kid in the Pacific Northwest, in a suburb of of Seattle, a very white area. But I had posters and pictures of black dudes all over my walls. Like, if you were to go into my childhood bedroom, there's posters of black dudes all over the walls. Football players. I I worshipped these guys. I thought they were the coolest people in the world. I didn't need to identify with them. I was like, these guys rule. They're amazing. Emmett Smith, that guy's amazing. Amazing. Emmett Smith, Deion Sanders, all these guys who were the stars of that era, I worshipped those guys. And most football fans are introduced to a lot more black people. They pay attention to a lot more black people than they ever would have naturally. And while there might be some football fans who watch it and grit their teeth, and they're like, oh, I hate black people, but I love this sport. I hate black people, but I love this sport, so I'm going to watch anyway. That might describe some people. Very few. I've known a lot of football fans. I mean, when I watch football, like, for example... I mean, it's not like I see the black players and I I think, like, everything they do is relatable. For example, like, black players dance and celebrate way, way, way more than the white players. And when I see a black player dance on the football field, it's foreign to me. Sometimes I'm like, what am I watching? These dances. This is not something I relate to but it's what they do. It's simply what they do. It's, it's a different, it's, it's a person from a different culture. It's a different ethnicity that is really into dancing. So they celebrate by dancing and they celebrate more than the white players, just how it is. But uh, beyond that, like there's not really, beyond that, I'm just watching football and I like the players I like. I like some black players, don't like others. I like some white players, don't like others, just how it is but it's it's all about the game and it's all about the indiv- it's all about the personalities and abilities of the individuals but by being such a big sports fan i mean sports was like a a precursor to what we're seeing now like what they're trying to do by like having half the cast be black in every single movie now is that was already realized when i was a kid watching football like watching football i was like oh yeah you know Every, you know, most of the players are black and that's cool. Like I wouldn't have recommended, like even today, I mean, I still love football. I'm finding it harder and harder to watch the NFL these days, but I still love football. But I wouldn't recommend football to somebody. I wouldn't tell somebody, hey, you should really check out the NFL. It's very progressive. It's very diverse. Oh, the the diversity in the NFL, you got to love it. I would never recommend it based on that. You could say it's not even diverse. It's mostly black and white people. You don't see Jewish, Mexican, Asian football players, but it's diverse based on the really shitty definitions we use today, which just means like people who aren't white, but still like I could recommend the NFL and be like, it's very progressive. You cheer on predominantly black teams. You cheer on predominantly black, wealthy men. That's that's what you're doing. Like when you watch football, you're cheering for mostly black guys who make more money than you've ne- than you've ever seen. That seems progressive. That seems pretty progressive to me. But uh, and that's why, like all the Colin Kaepernick stuff is such bullshit. You know, that's that's why that's such bullshit because it's like, I mean, even talking about playing sports. Like, if I hadn't played football, I played youth football, and that not only put me in contact with more black people than I'd ever been around, it put me on the same team as them. I had black coaches more than one year. More than one year. I had like like three or four black coaches over the years. And I've talked about Big Dog on here. I did an episode about my coach, Big Dog, who was an extremely... Man... I would say he, he was a, just an extremely tough, mean black man who people said used to be a drill sergeant. I never knew if that was true. I never found out if Big Dog truly had been. He was like a middle-aged black man. I never found out if he had actually been a drill sergeant. But even if that's a rumor, like even if there's a rumor that's not true about somebody that they used to be a drill sergeant, that tells you about you know how they are. Like the fact that even a rumor, the the fact that a rumor even existed that Big Dog had been a former drill sergeant tells you about what kind of coach he was. He was like a drill sergeant. He was tough. But you know what? I never respected a coach more than him. I've talked about him on here before. I had such respect for that guy. I was terrified of him. I was terrified of disappointing him. I was terrified of his wrath, but I respected every second of it. I wouldn't have had that experience with a black person. And it wasn't because anybody tried to prevent that. It wasn't that growing up in Kirkland, Washington, involved people deliberately preventing little old me, a little white baby like me, from having a mentor. I mean, a coach is a mentor. Not like I I knew him past that year. But still, like, it's not that anybody was preventing me from having a black mentor. Just, it just wasn't something that was readily available in the place that I lived. It just wasn't, it wasn't it wasn't something that would naturally happen just based on demographics and all that. But because I played youth football, I had more than one black coach and I liked them all. My favorite coaches were the black guys. I had another another year I had a guy named Larry, a black man named Larry. Big Dog and Larry might be two of my favorite coaches out of all those years playing. And, uh, that's pretty cool that like, as a kid who grew up in an area who would never have that kind of interaction, you know, yeah, there were, there were black kids in my school and I saw black people around. There was a black janitor at my, my elementary, whatever, but I wouldn't have had that, that kind of direct interaction with the guy, but football put me in that position. It also I had black teammates who I never would have interacted with, who I never would have met. They didn't become my best friends. You know, we were different people for the same reason you're not friends with everybody you meet. You know, you're not always going to become good friends with everybody, but we were teammates and we were, there's a common goal. You know, just like you watch football on TV and you root for a team, you cheer these guys on. You're on the same team and you're cheering your team on. You're working together to try to win and you celebrate together. You go, you do five days of practice every week in the grueling heat in the August and September and then very cold weather by November and uh, you're working toward a a common goal. There was nothing in my immediate environment that would have involved me working toward a common goal with black people. Again, not because anything was preventing that, simply because it wasn't that, it just wasn't that town, you know, it just wasn't a town where that was readily available, I don't live in the South. I don't, you know, I don't live in a a big city. I live in a suburb of the Pacific Northwest. But because I played football, like it put me in a position where that's the only time I can think of where it's like I was on, you know, me and black people were (laughs) me and black people. It's in my children's book. But me and black people were working toward a common goal, an immediate goal together. Because you're not even going to get that in school. Like, you might interact with black people at school, black kids at school, but you're not going to work towards something with them. You just have class with them, and you may or may not get along with them. So it's just interesting in that way. Like, some of these same people who are pushing for all this stuff are the same sort of people who are like, oh, you mean sports ball? Oh, yeah, you know, is this the same league that banned Colin Kaepernick for being black, for caring about black people? Meanwhile, they never even watched Colin Kaepernick play. They never even followed that as it was happening. They just picked up the fumes of it from the media and their friends. And then when Colin Kaepernick comes out and says, oh, the NFL is a modern form of slavery, they buy that shit. Meanwhile, it's like football has been way more progressive than any of the shit you've ever done or any of the shit you've ever cared about. It's modern day slavery where black men who came from nothing are making tons and tons of money and receiving adoration from everybody. Sounds like slavery to me. Show me those plantations where slaves were making $30 million. They were signing $30 million contracts. Show me that plantation. The one where they were driving Rolls Royces and eating at the best restaurants. And all of the white people at the plantation cheered them on as they worked. Yeah, the NFL is totally like slavery. It's just like a plantation, right? But the thing is, progressive liberals buy into that bullshit. They buy into this bullshit that people like Colin Kaepernick push. Meanwhile, they don't even think about what the NFL actually is. and It's way more progressive than than anything they've ever done or cared about. But you know what? The thing is, like, the typical NFL fan doesn't push that angle. The typical NFL fan doesn't watch it because it's very black. They don't buy a jersey of a black guy or worship him because he's black. I mean, people do like getting a taste of black culture. Like, there are people who like certain players because of the way they talk and dress and you know, their personality and and some of them, you know, are very, very, um, very representative of black culture. Some people like that, but it's not the reason why people care about the NFL. It's not the reason why people root for these players. The reason why they root for these players and buy their jerseys is because they like the way they play and they like the sport. What is that? That's the story. NFL's a story. Every single NFL game is a story. Sometimes it's a boring game, and that's a boring story, but it's still a good game. You know, it's still the sport is still good. But the story of the NFL, the story of the NFL is good. The story of the game is good. Therefore, you support these guys. With uh, Hollywood, with Hollywood what's funny is the running back on a couple of my teams growing up, he was a black kid with the nickname Hollywood. He was a prima donna. So they gave him the nickname Hollywood. He had an earring and a gold chain. His name was Brandon, which is hilarious, actually. I, I can't believe I just now thought of this. His mom was like the team cheerleader. Hollywood's mom was the team cheerleader. She would put pennies in empty soda cans and shake them on the, on the sidelines and cheer us on but specifically cheer him on and she was literally shouting at all of our games let's go brandon let's go brandon because hollywood's real name was brandon and of course his mom's gonna call him brandon she'd be like hollywood let's go brandon so it's hilarious to me that growing up i was listening to a black woman shake cans full of pennies screaming let's go brandon considering that (laughs) what that slogan means today but Hollywood, you know, he's a prima donna. His nickname was Hollywood. I just thought of that. But with, with Hollywood, California, the industry, uh, take an inhale here. With Hollywood, with the industry, I mean, they can't recreate that organically. And, you know, what makes the NFL good and what makes most NFL fans think nothing of rooting for a black guy or being a fan of a black guy who plays in the NFL. The reason why they, don't, why they think nothing of it is because the story is good. The story of the NFL is a good one. It's fun to watch football. It satisfies you. But with, with what's coming out of Hollywood, you're distracted by these other symptoms because the story isn't good. If these were good stories, I don't think there would be nearly the level of controversy. Nobody had any problem liking black things. That's a weird thing that's gotten twisted over the years. When I was in junior high, most of what people listened to was black music. That was by the time I was thirteen, everybody was listening to rap. The Wigger phenomenon was taking off. I had to get my Wigger reference in. The Wigger phenomenon was taking off. You know, rich white girls were listening to rap all day, every day. They were listening to R and B. They were watching black movies. They, were, they, they loved black celebrities. They were, you know, there was no issue. People loved black culture. Black culture was and is extremely popular in entertainment. And people who barely know... When I was growing up, where I grew up, these people barely knew any black people but loved black things. The black kids in my school were celebrities... They kind of tended to, to hang out with each other because people naturally do that. But they were all popular. I think everybody except for maybe one black kid in my school was popular. Kids looked look to them as the embodiment of cool. That comedian Donald Glover had a good joke about that years ago. About 10 years ago, he had a joke that was like, He's like, when I was a kid, like I, we switched schools, like my family moved and I had to switch schools. And when I went to my new school, he said, all of these white kids came up to me and were like, what kind of shoes should I wear? What kind of rap should I listen to? What's cool? And he was just like, I'm into the cranberries. And you know, the way things are now, somebody would say like, oh, they were stereotyping him because he was a black kid at their school. They were assuming he's into shoes and rap. Well, a lot of black people are, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of black guys are into shoes and, and rap. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Oh, they stereotyped him when he came to his new school. They, they wanted to be his friend. And He wasn't saying it like it was a bad thing. He was just saying like, oh yeah, people thought I was going to be like this really cool guy because I was black, but I, I'm into the cranberries. That was the joke. The joke was about him being a nerdy guy. You know, the joke was about him being a dork. A dork. It's about him being a dork. It wasn't about... It wasn't about... The, he wasn't upset they stereotyped him. He, he was just making a joke about how he was actually a dork. A dork. I thought it was a funny joke. But that experience that he talked about... And I think he's around my age. I think he's maybe a little older. But that was similar to the environment I grew up in... Where all of the black kids in my school, with few exceptions... Were kind of like little celebrities where people like looked to them as the embodiment of cool. They had tons of friends. They were popular. So I grew up in an environment, like what makes all this stuff so twisted to me is I grew up in an environment where one, I had pictures of black guys all over my walls. I still do. Come to my house, come to my bedroom. I don't let people in my bedroom because you open the door and there's just, there's photos of black guys all over the walls. No, I, I had a, like some sort of plaque, with this big picture of Emmett Smith on it. I had, a, I had the Michael Jordan wings poster that I mentioned in the last episode. I had a, a Bo Jackson poster. It was Bo Jackson wearing shoulder pads and holding a baseball bat. A bunch of other things too. A bunch of other football related things as well. So like I grew up in a, at a time where like I thought these black athletes were the coolest people in the world. I had them all over my walls. I went to a junior high and high school made up primarily of white kids, middle to upper middle class white kids, and everybody worshiped black celebrities, black movies, black music. I mean, all of the, all of the popular kids, all of the popular boys' favorite movie when I was growing up was Friday and they all listened to rap. So people loved black culture and black people, and you know I think you know I, I think people have a tendency to uh, put them even on a pedestal, and you could say that's not good. Like I mean I understand that argument that like putting black people on a pedestal and like worshiping like one aspect of their culture might not be the best thing to do. I don't know. I mean I think it, it does get kind of weird. It does the the way people are about that stuff does get kind of weird? But point being like there I. There was, I I never saw any, um, I, I guess I don't think people needed an injection of that stuff. I don't think people needed, Lord of the Rings came out around that time. The Lord of the Rings movies hit the theater right around that time. All the kids that I went to school with, listening to rap, watching Friday, they also loved Lord of the Rings. They didn't need Lord of the Rings to be injected with diversity They already had a bunch of it and this was a story in a specific world that didn't require that that wasn't based around that so why inject it now is my question and you and all that stuff's increased since then like i think white youth even in the 20 years since i've been in school white youth are even more into black people they're even more into black things So again, why the injection? What evidence is there that the way things were heading, the way things were, wasn't good enough? Like, where's the evidence of that? Well, what I'm trying to do here is break it down logically, but logic isn't a part of this. Logic isn't a part of the progressive liberal agenda. Diversity isn't even the goal. It's about power. It's about control. It's about manipulation. And through this process, some minorities have gotten more power than they would have otherwise. But those aren't the people orchestrating this in order to get power for themselves. It's progressive liberals who have been doing that. It's all about them getting power. And that should be terrifying to anybody that they're currently using. If I was a trans person, if I was a black person, I would be terrified of progressive liberals. I would be terrified of them. I would be thinking, as soon as they're ready, they will discard me. They've already done it to gay people. I was just thinking about this today, how... I guess I talked about it a little bit the other day, about the pride thing, but how the pitch that was being presented for years, the gay marriage pitch accepting gay people pitch was hey they're just like you gay people are just like you dude gay people gay people are just like you they just want to have a white picket fence nuclear family and children they just want to get married and adopt some children dude you think the the, the perverts the, the guys in leather daddies costumes with leashes around their neck they're just like a small minority most gay people are just they're just like you and they just want a family with a white picket fence and kids you know that was the the message and a lot of gay gay people themselves are saying that i just want to be able to do that and and that was a, a strong argument you know that was a lot of people that was an effective argument a lot of people were convinced by it and that was what the progressive liberal agenda was presenting. We just want this. We just want them to be able to do what, what you know, other people do. Well, we've seen since gay marriage was legalized and progressive liberals have gained that much more cultural and political power, we can see that they've largely discarded that. And some of the gay people who have been pushed to the right actually are those like white picket fence type people. And I, I listen to them. I pay attention to some of them. They are the sort of people who were just like, I just I just kind of wanted to not be... Like I was talking about those guys that I knew years ago. Terry, uh, the neighbor, and like hanging out and drinking with a bunch of these like middle-aged to senior citizen-age gay men. I don't think... Th- those guys didn't have families and like they they came up in a different generation, so I don't even think they were thinking about wanting to get married and have kids. But still, they, they wanted the same sort of... Uh, They wanted the same sort of acknowledgement. Like they just wanted to be treated like, hey, we're just guys. We're just your neighbor. We're just your, you can come over and hang out. Like we're going to be good neighbors. You know, it it was kind of a white picket fence mentality. And the, the gay people who are very critical of the progressive left these days are often those types of guys, women too. Because they feel that they were used and discarded. And nasty things are said to them. The whole turf thing is a good example. Calling, I, I'd never heard of that term, TERF, until, I think I heard it for the first time in 2016, or I think it was 2015. Somewhere around there. 2015, 2016. Because, you know, this stuff, it was going on here before it was going on elsewhere. And at some point there was some woman, I don't even know who she was, I don't know if I would recognize her name now, but a woman was coming to Olympia for some reason, and I was with this group of people who were like, "Oh my god, so and so is coming here." And these protesters, we saw these protesters on the street, and they were like getting ready to confront this woman because she was supposed to be passing through town. And I was like, "What?" And then, like my this my friend's girlfriend was like, "She's a turf. They're going after her because she's a fucking turf. Like she deserves it. Like," and I, I didn't know what that was at the time, but I was like, "Oh, okay. These are." you know, lesbians and feminists who aren't into the direction that progressive liberalism is taking this. They were already starting to feel discarded. Now they really feel, now many people really feel that way. Of course, not all of them, probably a minority of them. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I have no idea. But it's a viewpoint that you wouldn't have heard in years past. Like, you wouldn't have seen this level of alliance between homosexuals and conservatives even five, ten years ago. I mean, definitely wouldn't have seen it ten years ago. So it's interesting that they feel discarded. They feel used. And we've seen where they're labeled with hateful terms. They're labeled with condemnation. They're, give, they're condemned and given scarlet letters. Because just being gay or lesbian now, now that there's far more acceptance of it, now that they can get married and live relatively normal lives, progressive liberals a- abandon them. And uh, so if I was somebody who was being propped up by progressive liberals now, I would be terrified. Because the thing is, you know, the right wing is, has plenty of its own tokenism. In the right wing now, again, this is something you never would have seen ten years ago. But the, it's not uncommon now for the right wing to prop up gay people, even on occasion, trans people, black people. They like to prop them up. Oh, we have a black guy here. We have our own black guy. Oh, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna put a, a black guy out to. You're, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna prop this black guy up, up, uh we're going to prop our own black guy up. It's its own form of tokenism. I think the difference with that is it's it's kind of understood that well, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go with that, but you know, I think it's 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 own form of tokenism, but it's happening happening at a I guess I guess what I mean is it's like conservatives aren't making that their platform. They will use minorities As kind of a, they'll prop them up, but it's not really a core part of their platform. It's just kind of a way of being like, see, we're not racist. See, we're not homophobic. We have our own, and we're fine with them because they agree with us. But the level that we see progressive liberals propping up black people and the trans movement right now, I would be very scared if I was them. Because I would think these are the people who are going to be labeling us. These are the people who in two years, five years, when it's on to the next thing or when it becomes inconvenient, because that's what we see in revolutions. There's this peeling of the onion that takes place. And once part of that skin is peeled off, it just gets discarded and stepped on. And I'll be very interested to see if that happens. I'm not Nostradami. I'm not Nostradomi. Not Nostradamus. I'm not. So I'm not saying I know exactly what's going to happen, but we know how these patterns play out. It would not surprise me. And anytime somebody goes out of their way, when they do too much for you, there's something in us that says, this doesn't feel right. This person's going to want something from me. It's like prison. They say in prison, like when you, when you go to jail... Don't accept gifts or favors from people. If someone approaches you on your first day in prison and they try to give you cigarettes or do something for you, be very skeptical of that because they very well might come and try to take something from you later. They might expect something from you later. And if you don't live up to that, well, you're in trouble. That's kind of how I see these politics where it's like progressive liberals have propped up these minority groups and they've said, like, you need us. We're your saviors. We will save you. We are your only friends. What does that sound like? It sounds like an abusive relationship. You know, one of the key parts of, a, uh, of an abusive relationship is often like, I'm the only one who, who you know, like it's, it's like a boyfriend who talks to his girlfriend is like, well, you know, I think you're really pretty. I don't know if other people do. Oh, I like you. I don't think other people do. I'm your only friend. I'm the only one who has your back. Very manipulative, classic manipulation. I'm I'm your only friend. I'm the only one who loves you. Do what I say because I'm the only one that loves you. Classic psychological manipulation playing out on a national level. But when you don't do what that person wants, when you don't do what the manipulative, abusive person wants, what do they do? They hurt you probably far worse than somebody else would. So that's something to consider. That's what I see in all this. It's not all just superficial like hey there's there's dark skinned people in my Lord of the Rings. That's just the the frosting. That's just the the rotten the rotting frosting. You know, the, the actual substance is something far different. And uh, and I, I think what's gone on with gay people should serve as a warning sign. What's happened to women, first and foremost, because it's they've done it, because this is kind of the way it's gone so far. It's It's more than just one group, because we see where feminism, what would now kind of be called traditional or classic feminism, was just all about women. And women being accepted and given opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't be afforded while still being women. Feminism, you know, even though there's bra burning and, you know, challenging of stereotypes and all that back in the 60s, a lot of it was also, we want women to be able to be women in ways that are unique to women and different from men, but still have the opportunities given to men you know, in our culture, in our society. But then that mutated, you know, feminism mutated. And then it became inconvenient to be that sort of feminist. If you didn't update yourself, if you didn't mutate with the definition, it became inconvenient to be a a feminist from decades past. And there are a lot of women out there who feel abandoned by it. I know some of them. I have a friend here who definitely feels that way. I have a friend overseas who seems to feel that way. I don't want to speak for anybody, but I know a number of women who feel that way. That they, they're still liberal or, or, you know, they still have basically, their, their views still align with liberalism, but I know they, they feel kind of discarded by what's happened politically. I think there's probably a lot of people out there who feel that way. I don't because I never identified with progressive liberalism. You know, none of the, I, I, I just, I guess I don't, I don't feel like I have no personal connection to any of that, but uh, you know, first it happened to women and then we saw where it happened to gay people. We've seen where gay people have now gone through that in recent years and I think there's a silent majority who isn't even saying anything. I believe that. I believe there's a silent majority who's just kind of going with the flow. But it very well could... uh, One of these other groups who's currently being propped up by the liberal progressive regime could very well be next. But you know what? This is all I can say. That's not my cause. That's not my cause. And it's sad, though because i think i think people have to experience it before they know it can even happen but i'll be curious in 5 or 10 years you know i said this before i've said this i said this a little while back where i was like you know people are all, are all afraid of right-wing radicals killing the current democratic leadership they're like oh no it's it's right-wing crazies crazies it's right-wing crazies who are going to try to kill the, the Democratic governor. And, and those people exist, sure. They're often propped up by themselves, by the FBI. They're often, you know, part of some sort of like sting or undercover operation enticing them to do things. But sometimes they're acting on their own, sure. But, uh, you know, because there's manipulation going on, though, on all levels, on all sides. But, you uh, My thing that I've been saying for years is, like, the people who are going to be putting Gavin Newsom's neck in a noose and putting, you know, Nancy Pelosi's head through the guillotine and whoever else, if she's even alive at this point, are going to be people who are going along, they're going to be, like, moderate left-leaning liberals, Or even, they might even be the far left people. It might even be the people who get the most fucked up by all this stuff. Like, I almost have this vision that, like, after all of these people's brains have been destroyed, after they've hacked their bodies up, these people who look ghoulish, they've had all kinds of identity-affirming surgeries, they've got stupid tattoos all over their body, you know, the, the people with the dyed pink hair, like a mob of, of them, they're going to be like charging at the enemy. And then the enemy is just going to hold up a mirror. It's going to be like a movie and the enemy is just going to hold up a mirror and they're going to look at themselves. They're going to look at what they've become. And they're going to turn around and head back to freaking San Francisco. And we're going to be like, oh, shit, like the people who ended up executing all of the Democrat and liberal politicians for abusing and manipulating them. It's going to be their freaking followers who do it. It's going to be their freaking it's going to be their followers who, who end up turning on them. Like people like me are going to be the one people like me because I, I'm so righteous. But no, people like me are going to be the ones but like, hey, hey, maybe maybe don't kill him. Maybe don't kill Gavin Newsom. Hey, I don't think you need to kill him. And they're going to be like, no, we must. You don't know what these people did to us. I don't know if that's going to happen. That's me. That's my dramatic. <laughs> that's that's my, my dramatic imagination at work. Like they're going to see, they're going to finally get it. And they're going to turn around and head back the way they came and destroy their masters. Although that's a common theme, you know, that happens. Like people will eventually turn on their masters. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what ends up happening, if finally like people reach that point. But the thing is, the reason why my predictions are bullshit is because I would have predicted that that would have happened already. I would have predicted that we would have already reached that point by now. I didn't actually think things could get this bad, and I know things aren't as bad as they could be, so I don't mean to get ahead of myself, but I didn't actually think things could get this bad this quickly, so I don't know what could happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not making predictions. I'm not Nostradamus, Nostradami. I'm not not a prophet. I think this is just one distinct possibility, because we've seen it play out throughout history. It's a common story. It's a story in our own real history and it's a story that we often present in fiction where the people who are being manipulated and controlled wake up and they turn around and they say, hey, you were the one causing the problems. Look what you've turned us into. And that's going to be really interesting. What are people going to be in a few years? All of these people who have hopped on this train... And you think about some of the gender stuff where, you know, when I was growing up, like some kids, you'd go through embarrassing phases, even popular mainstream phases. Like I just, I look back at my teenage years, like old photos, and I see how stupidly baggy some of the clothes were. I was wearing shirts that went down to my knees and pants that were, you know, like five times too big. Some of the shirts, the colors, the things you wore, the things you were into were embarrassing and that's mainstream stuff. Baggy jeans and baggy shirts and all that, that was mainstream and you still look back on it and you're like, oh, kids who go through like really embarrassing goth phases are like, here's a picture of me and it's really embarrassing from my goth years. What are people going to do about what's going on now? Oh, here's the period when I, I was pretending to be a boy. Maybe some of these people, they feel that's them and they're going to stick to it, but the rate at which it's happening, the the percentage of people who are getting sucked into that, you're going to have a lot of people who look back at their teenage years and I hope they look back. I hope things don't get worse for them. I hope things aren't so horrific. I I hope things are good enough in the future that we can even look back and reflect on who we were. But with these young people, and I don't don't claim to understand them well enough to know, but... uh, well enough to know what's going on inside of them but i can't help but feel that some of these people are going to one day look at themselves and think like what happened but i think as long as these social circles are as self-policing as they are as long as these social mandates exist and this forced silence because the thing is you know I, i mentioned um There's a lot more people out there who don't like the program, but they're afraid to speak up. There's a lot of those people out there. And a lot of that is social, though. A big concern from people, and people have said this, is that they're worried about losing their group of friends. Friends are hard to make, especially in today's world. A lot of people are terrified of losing their group of friends, and they know with the way that friendship and social life is so politicized in many places now... They're worried that uh, they're going to lose their entire social life. I can think of people I know in town here that I used to hang out with who I don't think are on board completely. Secretly, I don't think they believe all of the things they claim to believe. And they're largely silent. But I think one of the reasons why they don't stray from the pack is because... They think the pack will ostracize them. And, and not just, It's the thing is though, it'd be one thing if it was just losing friends. Losing friends is child play. That's baby stuff. Losing your, your social group is baby stuff. Easy come, easy go. What people are terrified is rumors, gossip, public shaming, reputation destruction, That's actually the bigger concern. It's not just that, oh, if I don't go along with the program, I won't have these friends anymore. I I won't have any friends. It's that if I don't go along with the program and these people find out, these people who are supposedly my friends, and think about that. Your friends are supposed to be the people who, friends judge friends and that's okay. Like, I, I don't like it when people say like, a friend will never judge you. They're not your friends if they're judging you. No, friends judge each other. It's good that friends judge each other. But this is different. These people's friends don't even like them. A lot of these, that's what I found with pretty much most social groups. They don't even like each other. Like, not not most social groups, but a lot of the ones I have experienced, I was like, these people don't even really like each other. This is just like convenience and fear of not having friends. And you're not supposed to like your tr- everybody in your tribe. I mean, that's the thing. Is like all this stuff is kind of like, uh, like, it's, uh, it's like mimicking tribalism. Like the way groups of friends form, they they kind of form their own little tribe, and they feel like a tribe. They're acting out what it is to be a tribe. And in a in a real tribe, not everybody likes each other. But because you're part of the tribe, you have to accept each other and deal with each other. Friendship is different because friendship is something where, like, this is supposed to be, this is supposed to make you feel generally good. This should make you feel more connected to these people. And... Uh, you know, so it's a fake form of tribalism because it's like these are people who just happen to find each other and spend time with each other, but there's not really a function to it in most cases. They're kind of acting out what it is to be in a tribe, but it doesn't have the function of a tribe. Where one of the reasons why you, you deal with people in a tribe, and I know so much about living in a tribe, but still, like one of the reasons why being in a tribe works is because you might not like another tribe member, but they have a function and you understand that because you are an organism. Oh, hey, I hate him. I hate that guy. But you know what? He's a really amazing hunter. And when we go out hunting, when the men go out hunting, we really need him in our hunting party. I might not like him, but he fulfills a purpose in this tribe. These these friend groups, they kind of operate on this tribal mindset But nobody's really fulfilling a function. Some people are just more dominant. But not going along with with these pseudo-tribes means I might not just lose friends, but they might make it difficult for me to do anything. They might make it difficult for me to live in this town. They might make it difficult for me to make new friends. They might make make my job difficult. There was a guy here who ran up he was fine he, he's a guy he was in um, he's an actor who splits his time between LA and Olympia and he was in some movies in the 80s I've I've had mutual friends with him but he like he ran he's a he's like a super lefty Jewish guy and he made music in the past he's he's a, definitely a narcissist being an actor. He was in one of the Friday the 13th movies or, or Nightmare on Elm Street. He was in like one of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Not very famous, but he was in that. And, uh, some people knew him around here. Like I, I have a friend, one of my good friends, uh, is friends with him, but some other people I knew like brushed up against him, like, like an acquaintance dated him and he's a very liberal guy. Like all of his beliefs are very liberal and, but he's very narcissistic, and he didn't, like, he didn't go along with the program. Like I was never able to actually figure out what it was he did, but he was, he was being called a misogynist, and people were confronting him in bars. A group of people that I know, well, I knew one of them, but he went with a group of other people, confronted this guy at a bar about his misogyny. And I was never able to actually find out what the misogyny was, because once that label is applied to somebody, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. He has the, he has the scarlet letter. And, uh, but it went, it went beyond that, where somebody I know, not somebody I like, but somebody I know here, actually attempted to call his workplace and everything. He, you know, this wasn't a me too thing. This wasn't a guy who had done anything. I know that much. It was some sort of comment he made one time. And, uh, I mean, this is the same group of people who flipped out on a guy who was dating their friend because he said that male authors are better than female. I don't even know if that was how he stated it, but I heard about that one for weeks and you would ask, like, well, why would you want to spend time with people like that? Well, I don't. I, I. This is when I drank all the time, and I don't hang out with these people anymore. That was enough. I don't hate them. I just don't want to be around them. But this guy who had said, like, he like that male authors are better than female. I heard about that at parties for like a year. Did you hear what he said? Oh, I, we don't like him because, but we. We, we don't like him because of this. It reminds me of that time that I was talking to a a woman friend of mine. And I said, I said, so, oh yeah, so-and-so she's one of my favorite female country singers. Can't remember who it was, but I was like, oh yeah, she's one of my favorite female country singers. And this girl I know was like female country singers. Like you have, you have to say that you can't just say country singers. It's like a waiter, waitress, actor, actress. You know, it's like, it's like that sort of thing, like the fact that you even have to like differentiate. I'm like, yeah, she's one of my favorite. Meanwhile, I'm saying something positive. Meanwhile, I'm saying like, I like female country singers and she happens to be one of my favorite. But because I made the distinction, I got pushback. What a stupid battle to fight. But uh, with, the, with this social, this, this uh, corroded social infrastructure, there's a lot of fear. And again, it's not just losing friends, it's that these people are quote unquote friends with individuals and in groups who will slander them, who will bash them, who will try to make their life really difficult for the most minor reasons. When they themselves aren't even pure. You know, the people doing this, the people doing this condem- condemnation have some of the guiltiest consciences around. But again, it's about control and power. And you can see in these social groups where certain people have a lot of the power. Like in the social group I was a part of, I'm going to avoid getting a specific, I'm, I'm going to avoid specifics, but there was one person in particular who wasn't even the most well liked person. But she was very much the the queen of the mean girls. But it was progressive, liberal mean girls. And I don't even think people liked her that much. I don't think they hated her. She had good qualities. But it wasn't like she was the alpha. It wasn't like she was the most popular person in this group of people. She wasn't anybody's favorite. But she ended up being the most influential one, the most powerful one, because she was the queen of the mean girls. She was willing to go there and not let go. And with people like that, the only way to get them out of your life is easy come, easy go. If you're holding on tight, let go light. Fortunately, it was easy for me. But, you know, it it could be done to anybody. You know, because she would do this to anybody. It didn't matter, male, female. A very close friend of mine, a woman, was very close to this mean girl. They were very close. And the mean girl found... She she got a... She, what's it called? She got... Um, what's that term? What's that word? I'm going to distract myself here. But uh, she got an advantage, basically. The mean girl got an advantage over this other girl. They had a falling out. She tried to destroy this girl's reputation to anybody and everybody. And so it wasn't that she was that popular. Like She, she wasn't the alpha because she was that well-liked. She was the alpha in this very progressive liberal group of people because, because she was willing to go there because she was constantly strategizing and playing people against each other and holding things against people and gossiping and slandering. And she had a network of people. This sounds crazy, but it's real. This is playing out. I hear this from friends who live in Portland. I, you know, other, many other people have had these sorts of experiences. But with people like that, with people like this queen of the mean girls, you know, let go light, easy come, easy go. No need for a confrontation. No need to tell these people what's going on with you. No need to tell them off or put them in their place. That's your ego. Your ego is the thing that's making it difficult with these people. You just, you just, oh, hey, I don't need to have anything to do with this person. I'm just going to ease out, I'm going to ease out of the room, and by the time I've pulled off my Irish goodbye and I'm out the door without saying goodbye, they don't even realize, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm long gone, I'm on my ride home. So that's the only way to deal with people like that, and this might be a particularly toxic situation, but it's not that uncommon. And so with this person, yeah, that's all you can do because that sort of person lives for confrontation, not just confrontation face-to-face, but they also live for this, um, they create a story. They create them against you, and they enjoy seeing who they can turn against you, who they can get information from, who they can get gossip from. They enjoy strategizing and analyzing, and and they do it automatically, ways that they can manipulate. And those people gravitate toward politics. Those people gravitate toward polarizing issues. And that's what we're seeing in politics itself. That's what we're seeing with these politicians. That's what we're seeing with these people who prop up certain groups and then throw them away. Is It's not that they care. It's that this is a way to get a lot of power and control. This is a way to manipulate people. So that's about all I got. A lot on these subjects lately. And, you know, I I don't have anything to say about the the Supreme Court. I don't have anything to say about the Supremes. I'm concerned, but not too concerned, about uh, the response. This gun, people are flipping out about this gun thing. The Supreme Court, you know, knocked down some law that was in place, something or another. The restricted carrying firearms out and about—something to that effect. It's not even—it's not something I need to think about. But that's got a lot of people really upset. And uh, pretty soon we're going to get a ruling here on ab- abortion on abortion. Pretty soon we're going to get a ruling here on abortion. And based on what leaked a month ago it very well could rile people up to a point we haven't seen for a couple years. I don't know. I think because the riots were so significant two years ago, a lot of people are constantly anticipating something like that happening again for good reason. But this has a chance of blowing up. We'll see. Because I know one of the ideas, like I, some people voted for Joe bin Biden saying like this will this, be the pressure valve. If we get Jabama bin Biden in office, it'll be the pressure valve, and the left will be like, okay, our guy won. Not that Jabama's f- far left, but he was their guy. He was the guy they backed. But some people thought that would be the pressure valve. Oh, if we if we elect Trump, if Trump's felt back in office, like there's a lot of people out there who, their, their opinion was basically like, I really don't like what the left has been doing. I don't like Trump's felt either, but if I vote... Obama been Biden in, it'll be like a pressure valve and it'll calm the country down. That, that's not what's happened. You know, people are more hateful and angry and you throw in very practical things like insane gas prices, inflation, these rumors of, sh- of food shortages, all kinds of things are going haywire. And that's a really tough, that's a bad foundation, especially going into summer. You know, summer is when people take road trips, go to the beach, go out for drives. And when it costs you $100 to do that every time, it's going to be less of a fun summer for people who want to go out and do things. So I don't know. Again, I'm not Nostradami. Not Nostradami? Not Nostradami. So I, I'm not making any predictions, but I'll be curious. The, the next couple of weeks will be very Interesting. Because it, it doesn't because we we now have seen what can happen and how bad it can get, we've seen how ready how uh, we've seen the bloodthirst. We've seen the wrath, queer wrath, like that graffiti I saw yesterday. Queer wrath, queer wrath. We've seen the wrath in people's hearts these days, in the last couple of years, last number of years. We've seen it developing and building And there hasn't been a pressure, you know, the pressure valve hasn't been released. In fact, things seem even more hysterical. So I don't know, you know, there's a powder keg here. And there's that part of me that seeks to be, you know, I've mentioned this before, like, Given all of the major events, both in my personal life, as well as in the world over the last three years, there's a part of me that's almost like addicted to the action. Like when there isn't something horrible happening, I'm like bored. And I I don't like to admit that. It's not that I want bad things to happen. It's that I got so used to bad things happening, life and world changing events. You know, I, I mentioned before, it's like my mom died, coronavirus, riots, An insane election, everything that followed the election, I've gotten kind of addicted in a weird way to these major events happening, these bad events. And so there's this part of me that I don't like, but like hearing about what's going on with the Supreme Court, I'm like, well, it'll be exciting if there's riots. Oh, if they overturn Roe versus Wade next week, it'll be exciting, but it won't be. It'll be something to pay attention to. It will... Um, it'll be big. But, like, we don't want that. But I don't know what else... I just don't know what else is going to happen. People hate each other so much. They really do. Like, where was all this hate when I... <laughs> where was all this hate when I was a much more miserable, hateful person? It's like one of those things, like... Where I'm like, I was ahead of my time. Like back when I was filled with spite. <laughs> you know, like I, I, the way I felt growing up, like, like when I was a teenager and a young adult, I often felt like, I'm negative because I'm, I'm real. I'm cynical because I'm real. And then it felt like the entire world was responding to me by saying, just go with the flow, just enjoy life. Just enjoy the small things. Why are you so cynical and mad? You've had a good life. Like, just follow your bliss, dude. I felt like the whole world was telling me that when I was a much darker person. I feel like I entered this world where, like, we, we switch roles where it's like, wait a second. Like, I'm the one telling all of you. I'm the one saying to you, hey, just take a deep breath. Uh, close your eyes for a second. And everybody else is like, no, we got to strangle the enemy. We got to strangle and I feel like that's what's going on now or I'm like man like I it's a good thing. I'd rather things be this way. I'd rather this be the way things turned out than the, than the opposite, but still I'm like what the heck is going on? It's just there's such a deep hatred in people's hearts for each other. And nothing alleviates it. It's a spiritual crisis. It's a psychological crisis. It's a curse. And I don't know that anything is really going to change that. I don't see any light at the end of that tunnel. There's a light at the end of all of our tunnels individually. And that's probably, by following that, that's probably the only way that we're going to reach the light at the end of the the tunnel as a whole. But right now, that seems elusive. I don't even see a speck of light down there. I know it's there. That this tunnel can't go on forever but I don't even see a speck right now this last um